I'm Lauren Rezepka, and you're listening to You Changed Me, where we explore the relationships that have changed us for the better, for the worse, or for the yet-to-be-determined. I explore these relationships as a marriage and family therapist, as a feminist, and as someone who is eternally curious about how we connect and how we are shaped. today talking to Katie Leibrandt. Katie, welcome. Thank you. Katie and I are meeting for the first time tonight. Uh, She was referred to me by a previous guest of the podcast, Christina Quinn. So Christina, thank you for your referral. I'm excited to hear more about your life and your story, and I'd love to hear you introduce yourself to me and the listeners. Sure. So I'm Katie Leibrandt, as you said. Um, I'm a 57-year-old business owner, mother, wife, grandmother. Um, I can go into many different um, genres <laughs> that I that I fill in my life, but I basically um, am a woman who loves her family and loves her clients and loves her business and um, really wants to make a difference. I've always, that may be like a lot of people, but it's become even more pronounced recently. Okay, and what's your business? My business is a financial planner. Mm -hmm. So I help people get from wherever they're at to I have them paint their goal, their dream for me, and then I help them take the easy steps to get to that. Mm, I think I might need your services. It's it's really (laughs) it's really fun because when people come in they're nervous. They don't think they qualify to do this kind of planning. They they always feel lesser and by the time they leave they just feel energized and like there's a plan for me. This is wonderful. I can get to where I want to go. You sound really passionate about it. I'm very passionate about it. When I think financial, just speaking from somebody who has no knowledge about it whatsoever, it's daunting. And I, I feel like I don't have adequate education about how to manage my own finances. I do my best, but I could see why walking into an office like that and thinking like, oh, I need to take charge of this could be intimidating. It's so true. And if we can give people enough confidence in what they're doing, then they they start to fly. They really can fly down a path, but it's a wonderful um, business that we get to help a lot of people like you, like in every walk of life, you know? And I think that's probably one to, one of the things people say about me is I make things that are very difficult and complicated easier to understand. And people come in just like you and say, you know, I'm sure I should know this. And I think, no, wait a minute, you know, you're a biologist, you're a um, whatever. But financial planning is, numbers my well, there life. you go, there you a go. therapist, <laughs> right. Why should you know what I do? Just like I could never do what you do. That would be daunting to me. So this is all I know. So it's easy for me. And that, I, you know, that way it's, it keeps things really um, easy for the, the client to digest. Well, fantastic. Um, let's hear, you're going to share about some things that everyone else seems to love that you hate. Right. I was thinking about this. What do I love? What do other people love that I hate? I don't know if a lot of, if everybody does, but a lot of people love watching golf or tennis. I do not. (laughs) (laughs) One that I know is much more um, common would be shopping. I am not a shopper. I do not enjoy it. Going out with my girlfriend and having her spend money makes me nervous. Having me spend money makes me even more <laughs> nervous. So I really, um, I'm not really a shopper. I'm more of, the, I think, on the male um, side, classic male side of hunter, where if I need a pair of pants, I'm going to hunt down that pair of pants, and maybe it's online or maybe it's, you know, at the different stores where I like, but. To just go peruse and spend all day looking and then not even finding something, like many options, I that just makes me crazy. So, so you don't have like 27 tabs open on your computer right now with five different things in every cart like I do? Yes, no, <laughs> no. And I make decisions really fast. Okay. So I literally, you know, I was on a, a call that I didn't really need to focus on and it was about a seven minute call. I just had to kind of be present and then I was on it. 
you know, I ordered a couple shirts that I needed, but it was so easy. And I thought, you know what, if it took me longer to take, to make decisions, I, I would never be able to do what I do. I, I have to do a lot of things every day. So I've learned to make choices quickly. And so when people shop with me, it's fine because I've learned to focus on being with them, mm-hmm. which I love. You not know, the process of shopping. Exactly. Itself. I'm not really there for the shopping. I'm there for the chat. I'm there for the camaraderie. I'm there for the support to the person trying to make a decision between three step stools across six different stores, which I would already, you know, I'd have looked online, known kind of what I wanted, and then found it where I, as soon as I could find it instead of just looking. Sure. But the okay. process is fun, so that that's all good. Um, what else do people love that I hate? Uh, my husband actually chimed in on that one when I asked him just before I left. He said, yeah, you're a quick decision maker. And he said, that is part of your, your power, though, because mm. you get things done and you help other people get things done. It's so, a good, good quality good. to have. Yeah, 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 I guess it works. So. Yeah. Let's dive into the reason that you've come onto this podcast. What experience in your life would you like to talk about that has changed you in an important way? Okay. Um, in November of 2015, I had been experiencing abdominal pain, and it wasn't anything I thought was out of the ordinary. Um, I went to see a couple of normal doctors, like you see your gynecologist, you see, I even saw a urologist thinking it's in the abdomen, it hurts. But I was working out like a fiend, so I couldn't imagine anything was wrong. I I thought I'm a perfectly healthy, at that point, 53-year-old woman. I work out at nine rounds where we kickbox, and you know I'm right there with the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings, keeping up with them in my workouts. So I'm extremely fit, and as I'm working out, I noticed my abdomen was like on that Santa Claus movie where he grows his stomach over the day, the course of the day, and it just felt like it was moving without me. Mm-hmm. It was moving, with, and I thought, that's odd. My husband looked at me and said, you look kind of like, a stick of gum with a little balloon at your stomach and I you're so fit I don't know what's going on and it was hard so I went to um, my MD after the gynecologist said I was fine urologist said I was fine and other MD said I was fine I was growing and it, it was I'm not I was not pregnant I it was growing so I went to another MD and the MD immediately um, pressed on my abdomen and said, all right, I want an ultrasound done ASAP, like today, tomorrow. And I said, fine. I went in and did that. And as she did that, she looked somewhat concerned, but not really. And I really was in complete and total la-la land denial. I'm a healthy person. Nothing's going to happen to me. I have two beautiful children. you know, things are going great. They're both on their own. They had graduated college, so things are going very, very well. I had just hired someone at work, um, and she's she was working out beautifully, growing my practice. And so um, I went into my gynecologist, and she said, you know what, I don't like the look of things. I'm not too concerned, but let's take that out. We're going to take out your uterus because there's something there that just doesn't look right, probably just fibroids, like the rest of the female population. Fibroids was the diagnosis at that point. So that was after you got the ultrasound? After the ultrasound, right. And she said maybe a degrading cyst or something like that. But since it was growing fairly rapidly um, from about July through August, I seemed to not be able to button my pants. So it was, it was getting bigger. Significant, yeah. It was significant, right. And then when I got to the surgery right in November, I was at a four-month pregnant state. I looked four months pregnant. And um, the doctor operated. I made a wonderful call to a friend of mine who I helped retire in New York, a, a doctor. And I said, what do you think I should ask my doctor? And he said, ask her when you get in there, 
if things don't look right and you have an oh darn moment, what's the protocol? What do you do? He said, make sure your surgeon knows what she's going to do if she finds cancer. And I said, okay, I'll ask her that. I don't expect it. And my surgeon said, I will consult with an oncology, a uterine oncologist or gynecological, I I don't know how to say it, oncologist. Um, Before we operate, I'll be ready and I'll have them on call with me. So I went to surgery, felt fine. Um, It was... I believe a four-hour surgery. It should have been two. Mm. So by the end of the third hour, my husband and my parents who were waiting in the waiting room were a little bit gray and anxious and probably quite anxious, as they said. And the surgeon came out and she also was gray and depleted. She's a a tall, thin woman, and she looked like she had nothing left, even to me, and I was halfway sedated still. But she said to my family, she's fine. We'll talk to you soon. It was a tough surgery. We took everything out, ovaries, uterus, um, tubes. um, So nothing is is left, and um, she's going to be fine. So I went into recovery, and then a week, it was probably, I know they were going to test it, but they said, don't worry about it, not a big deal. We think everything was removed, so you don't have anything to be concerned about. So I have about 23 stitches, um, staples, I should say, across my abdomen, and I'm in my bed recovering and kind of wondering when they're going to get back to me with ultimate results of this. And it was eight days later, the 17th to the 25th. And on the eighth day, which is the day before Thanksgiving, she calls and says, we need to see you in the office. I said, can you tell me anything? No. Okay. We'll be right there. Right. And it's three o'clock on the day before Thanksgiving. So my husband's trying to cook for the family, etc. And we go and it took them an hour and a half to see us and no one else was in the office. It was very strange. Everyone's looking at me. It was almost like they knew something. And I'm in the waiting room and I'm kind of annoyed with the weight. Abdominal surgery, so I'm lying across their chairs. I get in there and she just takes her hands and opens them up to me and says, I don't know what to tell you. You have leiomyosarcoma. I'm sitting on the table. My husband is sitting in a chair away from me, and he immediately comes up to me and grabs my hand. And he said, what is that? And she said, well, I don't want you to Google it, but it's a rare aggressive cancer. There's no cure. At this point, we see two to 18 months, and you could be you could die. We don't know how to help you here. We've never seen this here. In our state of Illinois, and remembering we have Chicago metropolitan area here, we don't have any specialists that we know of. So in that moment, what are you feeling? Disbelief. This can't be true. Um, Fear for my children. Poor grown, but they still need me. I'm kind of the one who creates the parties for the family of 30, who cooks for the family of 30 and loves that. Um, Every Thanksgiving, every Christmas has people over. My house has no fewer than 100 people in it on Halloween. I have parties for 75 every um, New Year's. Um, somewhere between 75 and 100. I love my friends and family, and I'm not ready to leave them. Sounds like you're the glue that holds a lot of them together. That's what I was concerned about, actually, because in that moment, you're not concerned about yourself. You're concerned about those you're leaving. Mm -hmm. So that was really enlightening to me because anyone who gets a diagnosis with cancer, and this is sarcoma, which is a different um, kind of cancer, um, but to hear rare and aggressive and incurable, all I could think of is, 
if a child were to get this and a parent has to hear this, I can't imagine what they'll do. If I survive this, I am going to work my entire life to find answers for these parents so they don't have to watch their children go through this. The solution to every sarcoma patient in our country is cut it out. May have to radiate it first, may have to shrink with chemo first, but it must be cut out. And it's one of those, it's a cancer that's different from most and that most cancers you have to have a um, margin that you carve around to get the cancer and any of its legs. This is a funny cancer that has up to 10 centimeters of legs and they shoot outward to the point where even if you cut off one tenth of a centimeter um, or one millimeter of a leg, that leg will go into normally the lungs first and metastasize. And once it metastasizes, people start losing body parts. So we have a sarcoma walk once a year in Chicago and I fundraise and I have a team kicking it with Katie and actually Christina Coyne was walking with me and her sister Kelly and yep, all my children and their friends and my children's spouses, um, my family, my mom and dad and my mom is actually with a walker so it was really lovely to have her come out and stand by me but the whole idea is we need to find answers for these people and I immediately went home and worked to save my own life because I was now of the understanding that when I read, I'm a math girl, I love math, I, I, it soothes me to do math. So I read every clinical trial and all the statistics on my disease cover to cover, got every single study across the country. And when I went to the top three doctors in this area, I hadn't yet gone to New York, which is where I ended up, but I went to Rush and I went to UIC and I went to um, Kellogg Cancer Center at North Shore. And as I spoke to the oncology teams there, and they do have a sarcoma kind of area that they've seen it before. It's just not maybe as many as some of the sarcoma hospitals across the country. Um, They said, we probably should do um, chemo. Oddly, my daughter is an oncology research technician Hmm. down at a company at this time. She's not anymore, but she was at the time, doing research in a lab. And one of the things that they gave her to study, she was the person who would dose, um, would put uh, grow tumors in mice and after a series of 300 mice have the tumor in them, she would dose them with the cure to see if it would work. And I know some people are against that, but the, her theory is, would you rather I test this on your child? And that makes us understand that, okay, these mice are doing a tremendous service for us. She was very good about um, euthanasia for anyone, any of the mice in pain because frankly, as a child, she had pet mice. So I know she she loved these creatures she tested, but she said when she knew sarcoma, and I I said they want me to use these two chemos in conjunction with each other, she just wrote in all caps across the text, no. She said, Mom, I would have two-thirds of my mice imploding on that combination. Do not do it. Do not go near it. And I respect my daughter. She's very intelligent. And I said, all right, I'm going to go to more doctors. I'm going to get more opinions. So I went to the next two doctors. The third one finally said, I said, here's the thing. I've been to two other sarcoma centers. I've already done my research. I already know the results. I already know that when you tell me that if I go on chemo, there's significant extra life, that that means two months. To me, that's not significant. So I'd ask you to first define significant if you're going to use that term with me. But please speak to me as you would an associate in this industry because I need you to respect that I know as much as I can know about this. And I am sure I'm still medically stupid, but I know enough to know what I can't 
do and what I might do. Please speak to me with that in mind. And he, he was wonderful. And he said, you had this removed. You had x-rays. We do not see a metastasis. Given that, and given that there is not significant advancement in your life to do chemo or radiation, I don't suggest you do it. And I said, okay, well, now there is also a, a, an estrogen um, depressant that people are taking. Um, I can't remember the name of it at this moment, but um, it it's kind of controls your estrogen. An increase in estrogen for a sarcoma patient is dangerous. It cause metast causes metastasis in some types. So they wanted to suppress my estrogen. Well, they first of all removed my female parts. So that was fine, but you still produce it and you can still even ingest it with foods, etc. So I said, how can I stay healthy? And they said, ideally, you want to eat a plant-based diet. Ideally, we want you to an integrative MD who's going to give you supplements that may or may not make sense to you, but that will get your body's immune system fighting hard. So I have a girlfriend in New York who is an, used to be um, the integrative RN at Harvard Medical School. So I spoke to her first. She immediately got me on some things. I did some strange things. So I would not recommend this to anyone. My Korean pastor, I asked her because one of the mushrooms or these or this um, element, glutathione, was found in the mountains of Korea. And knowing she's from there, her father got a powdered concoction of it and flew it over on the in his suitcase so that he could give it to me so that I could take this thing that might help me or might not. My integrative MD that I now have at, um, at the hospital that I'm working with, they are doing uh, a great job and they said, how did you find these things? And I told them it was unbelievably yes through research. I simply used resources that would be respectable, not just Joe or Charlie or so-and-so with somebody's med with an MD and somebody with this who's done studies and there were different evidences of it helping. So I started taking mushroom pills with 26 mushrooms powdered in them. I took broccoli pills. I took beets. I eat beets all the time. These are your top anti-cancer foods. And then I started the plant-based diet and then I started CBD after I saw the MD. She prescribed a CBD, um, which is marijuana without the hallucinogenic element, the THC. So it's legal everywhere at this point. Uh, when I started taking, it was medically legal. So she prescribed that. Um, I don't know, as and my MD would say to you and to me, we don't know what of the 12 different things we're doing with you is working. So it's like I, she said, in fact, she just said this last time I saw her. She said, I feel like I threw spaghetti against the wall and it's stuck. And so now we don't want to take any of it off. <laughs> I have six friends in Illinois who have this disease, leiomyosarcoma. We meet every now and then. We support each other. We have a Facebook group nationally. But of the six in Illinois, they many of them... Some of them are so sick now. One of them, I'm thinking he's in bed. He has 60 lung metastases. metastases. It's, it's bad. And a girlfriend, she had a heart attack. She's like in her 40s. My other friend had half her face, her cheeks removed. And women, we're about, you know, we're not about our appearance, but it's important to us. I'm sure it is to men as well. But that's hard. And it reminds her every day that she's at risk for this. And my doctor said, I need you to meditate because, or do yoga or seek a counselor because this is like every night you go to bed and there's a revolver sitting by your bed that somebody else gets to choose when to use. And you don't know when that will be. So that's big and that's hard and that's heavy. And we want you to have support. I, I almost feel guilty because I'm so whole. I just had a uterus removed. I've had nothing else. I've not had any drugs. 
those who went on the aromatase inhibitors, that's what the the estrogen prevention, Mm -hmm. those who went on that are feeling like they're 80 years old and they're 50 or 40 because it makes their um, joints ache and it's difficulty movement and restricts them in their activity. And some of them have had to stop working, but not me. So it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough living with, it's tough feeling guilt. Why did my sister-in-law with three girls, eight, 13 and 15 die while I have a I don't know what they were at that point. They were 23 and 25 year old who were just fine and independent and graduated. I don't know why things happen. And that, it's all hard. So I'm just finding my way. Um, But the positives that have come out of this are I help others. For example, I was at this walk and there's a she was probably a five-year-old little girl, and she's bald. I know she's been on chemo. She had sarcoma. She told me what kind, and she grabbed her mom's hand, and I had colorful signs that my niece, Lara, helped me make, and so we, we were holding these signs and kind of marching around with them uh, to support fundraising for this Lyo Mayo, and the little girl looked at the sign, and we gave it to her because she really wanted it, and she said to her mom, Mom, Will I ever be as tall as her? Me, and I'm tallish. And I looked down at her and I said to her mom, who had started to cry, I said, may I answer? She said, sure. I said, you absolutely can be as tall as me someday. You just have to never give up. You have to listen to your mom. She's going to find you answers. Listen to your doctors. They're going to help you. And do everything that you can do to stay healthy and positive and enjoy every moment. But you can definitely be as tall as me. Well, she stuck out her chest and she marched around with a new energy that I didn't see in her before. And her mom just mouthed to me, thank you. So I see that as my job now. I have a job and a career as a financial planner and... I have a 28-year-old associate partner running it with me that when I got sick, I looked at her and I said, this may be yours. I'm signing assigning it over to you today. And I did the legal paper right there. <clears throat> it was worth, it's worth a couple million dollars, but I just essentially handed it to her because I knew my husband couldn't do it. And I said, you have to take care of my clients. They are everything to me. I've worked for them for a lot of years. They're my family, they're my friends, etc. You have to take good care of them. And she's still with me and she's taking over the practice eventually, but now we'll have two, other, two or three other advisors join her. But she was wonderful. But as my husband said, when I said, how has this changed me? He said, you... You don't get distracted by extraneous details anymore. You are so focused on what you need to do and how you can help people. And he said, for example, my focus, I suddenly became like I needed to build a lake house in New York State. My, my mom and dad have a property there. That was my grandmother and grandfather's and it's right on the lake and we've always had trouble fitting the family in to this little cabin and when I got sick I was sleeping and I woke up and I scratched down on a piece of paper towel a picture of a house with every room drawn in it and I brought it to my dad that afternoon I was very shy about it because I have three brothers, and my three brothers have very different personalities, each from each other as well as from me, and oftentimes um, don't really like new ideas from sister, is my understanding. They'd probably see it differently. But I thought, oh shoot, they're going to shoot me down on this because it's a crazy idea. Here I have it drawn on a paper towel. 
And yet my dad, who's always been more of a visionary with me, he's the one who actually brought me into the business and let me take over his practice Mm. for him. He said, wow, all right. And he talked to my mom about it. And I said, if you pay for it, if you find a way to finance this, you go right ahead. I want it to be long to the family, ultimately. I don't want it to belong to just one of my four children. Mm-hmm. So, And I understand that. And this was my, I thought I was dying in 18 months. So I wanted it built by the next summer before I died so I could put my rocking chair on the deck. My dad said I had to put one up there for him. <laughs> wow. so, so we built it. This is an incredible story. This is, like I said, just an incredible, incredible story. And I have lots of questions. Um, The first thing I want to clarify is after you go to several doctors, after your surgery, the treatment that you ultimately end up engaging in and ends up being successful for you is what exactly? Surveillance. Watch watching, meaning every they prescribed every three months um, a CT of my abdomen and chest because the chest is the first to metastasize. Okay, so just surveillance uh-huh. and an alternate diet and supplement. That is mind-boggling. Like that is truly. That's it. That is so. When you started telling this story, I did not think it was going to end in that way, and that was incredible. And that leads me to a couple things that I'm learning about you, which I think are worth highlighting and exploring here. Which is number one, you were an incredible advocate for yourself, and I think that that is something that is a skill not everyone has. The fact that you went to multiple doctors after they said you were fine. The fact that you contacted your daughter about the treatment. The fact that you contacted friends and business. And they basically didn't say you're fine. They said you're going to die. <laughs> you got to be okay with that, and we can treat you. But you know, this is this is your death walk. Yeah. So, but the when you first went to those when you first went to your gynecologist before they did the ultrasound, right? And they said what exactly? Fibroids. Okay. So they didn't give you much cause for concern. No. But you kept seeing additional doctors. Right. Until you got that ultrasound, until that doctor said like... Correct. Okay. I did have to be very aggressive. You had to advocate for yourself. If you stopped at that first doctor... I would be dead now. You would not... Yeah, you would be dead and you would have never gotten the right information. With just abdominal pain. Right. I would be dead now. I mean, I thought it was just weight being a 53-year-old woman... Gaining some abdominal weight. It's very normal. Many of us mm-hmm. women do that. So I thought it was that. And yet it didn't feel right. My husband was most helpful in confirming it doesn't look right. It's cold. Mm-hmm. Why is your whole body warm, but that's cold? Your abdomen is cold. So you listened to your body, mm-hmm. you listened to your gut, and you kept pushing for more answers. You saw more experts. Then when you got news and you started having more information, you still reached out to various supports in your life to get different opinions and different expertise. That ability to advocate for yourself saved your life. It did. Have you always had that skill? Where did that come from? When you're put in that position of you're going to die, there's really no loss at trying something at looking at something. I mean, literally this Korean dust that I took, I'd lie on my back and she's, she's, my pastor was the one who brought it over to me and I trust her and love her with all my heart. And she said, now it's going to make your entire body red, flush and tingly. <laughs> and as it went down, as I digested, my entire body started, so it was weird. Mm-hmm. But I thought, she said, you know what? The Koreans have been taking this for thousands of years. It can only make you healthier. It can't hurt you. And that just, I thought, okay, I'm going to try that. Try this inside of a, another therapist told me, try the inside of an apricot seed. Uh, some, I don't want to mention what it is just because I don't want someone trying it and killing themselves. But it's something that, it's, it's poison. It's like mm. um, cyanide poisoning. And I took that for 30 full days after the surgery 
felt like I had the flu every day, but kept taking it thinking it's doing something. Maybe that saved my life. I don't know. I don't know which of these things, but I do know that my doctor said, do nothing and just let this play out. And by doing all these somethings, I'm healthier than people with my diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so I know there's something to it. Oh, I also added 35 minutes of aerobic exercise daily, no matter what. I may take one day off a week, but I added a trampoline because that empties your lymph nodes, the mini tramps, they call them rebounders. And I do that 35 minutes or I do yoga or I do elliptical or I do running. I do jumping jacks and um, jump rope and push-ups. I, I just do really alternating um, exercise because the one MD said, after you do 30 minutes of aerobic exercise, your blood is changed. It is more able to combat invasion, invasion or, or predator cells. Hmm. So if you do this exercise every day, you may be able to combat new cells building in your body. So, uh, you know, the wrong kind. So I thought, all right, taking that on as well. They also said stay lean because fat would produce estrogen, which could kill me. So I work out and eat for my life to the point where if my husband sees me eating ice cream three nights in a row, he gets sad. And that look on his face helps me to regroup mm-hmm. and pull back to food is medicine. Don't abuse it. Everything in moderation. I'm working with my plant-based. I don't eat red meat. I will eat fish every now and then. I know some of the plant-based won't do that. So it sounds like that concept of food as medicine, exercise as survival, all of your openness and willingness to try new things that will um, keep your body healthy and keep you strong, that that was a real shift that you went through in how you saw the world and how you saw health and nutrition. And then the last element is mental. Um, If you believe that something's going to happen that's very powerful, and I didn't believe that, so I read a book, and I'll think of the book, um, But it essentially was all the different ways people believe that something's going to happen and evidence that their belief actually may have helped things to come to fruition. Mm -hmm. Perfect example is World War II and people, uh, the surgeons there, ran out of lithium, which is what they would give people to sedate them to amputate a blown off limb or something. So that when they ran out of lithium, the doctors, the surgeons said, and my grandfather actually was a surgeon who did this, so he told the stories of how he did this, and he said, I can't cut off someone's arm without sedative, without some kind of anesthesia. And they said, the doctors agreed, let's just give them saline solution, salt water. Let's inject it and tell them. It's anesthesia, they won't feel anything. And people didn't, and they felt good. Or they gave another example of a gentleman who was told he had cancer and it was stage four, and he would die. And he believed that, and his family gathered around, and they believed that. And it was probably three months. They gave him three to six, three or four months. It's in the book. Um, He died of cancer. I put that in parens. And they did an autopsy. It was a mistake. He didn't have any cancer, but he's, he died nonetheless. So I really feel that you also have to be very strong mentally and envision wellness, envision what you want, and move towards that in, with every cell of your body. Mm-hmm. And I, that's impossibly hard. Yeah, what strategies specifically did you use to create that strength, that mental strength? So I you saw said, counselors. That's really hard to do, yeah. Right. So you saw and counselors. I, I saw counselors, and I, I tried them on like hats. I, I saw one. I thought, no, not quite. You know, didn't fit. Or the three bears in the porridge. And I said, all right, well, this one's good for this reason, but I'm not getting what I need. I kept seeing, and I finally found, from each of the four, I got one or two pieces that helped me to focus on, um, 
wellness and envision wellness. And I'm trying to think the other part to this is spiritual. I'm very religious now, and I'm sad to say it took me getting this to make me more religious. I've always believed in God. I've always been a Christian. I've always been um, faithful that way, but never really communicated um, religiously or with with God. And I started to do meditation with a Christian meditation specialist. And she would help me to say, he wants you well. You're made to be well. Even in my diagnosis and what they removed from me, they said my tumor, which was the size of the uterus was 10 pounds at the point they removed it. And the tumor was 10 centimeters, uh, 10 per 10 high power fields, which just means aggressive. But part of that, what they said to me was there was necrosis, Mm -hmm. which means cell death, which means my body had already said, all right, nobody's taking this out. So we're going to start working at killing it. Our bodies want to be whole and healed. It's just like people who have one leg shorter than the other, and yet they've never known it, and they just kind of walk along until they get pain. We make do. We keep going. Uh, I think probably moms are worse at this. You know, we can be sick and 102 fever and still do everything that we have to do in life, and some dads as well. But it's our bodies want to be well, and so I focused on that. I focused on... Um, my belief is that he wants me well. Um, my higher power is God. I don't know. My nieces have spiritual higher powers or they speak of the universe, whoever that is to you. That's who I would communicate with and they, they want you well. And so that, that keeps me going. I read something optimistic and spiritually positive about that every single morning I got a booklet from a client that gives me that phrase and parable every single day. So you had to find ways to nourish your body, mind, and soul so that you could survive. Correct. And then begin to thrive as well. Right. How did this diagnosis change your relationships? I'm thinking with your children, with your husband, the central relationships in your life who define your world. Right. Well, my husband's comment was funny at diagnosis. He said, you can't die. I love your crazy ass. <laughs> and I said, thank you. I don't want to die either. And, and really love being with him. It, it takes away the garbage, basically. It takes away, I have, the, I have two children, now 28 and 30. Each of them have spouses. My son-in-law was not my son-in-law when this happened. I had actually just two children, no spouses when this happened. And I believe my children and even their significant others realized what was important in life. And immediately my daughter was engaged to be married. And they were married the following uh, April. My son and his uh, girlfriend, who became his fiance, were married a week later. They... They, they just saw in each other, you're the person for me. I'm not going to mess with any more garbage or time or this yeah. or that. And so they were, they were joined. My husband and I definitely bonded much more strongly, so much more strongly, where it's almost like the whole world could go around us in a hurricane, but we could only see each other. And we held on to each other for dear life because we really want to be together and we're not the perfect marriage like I don't think that exists I think that everybody has um, a roller coaster marriage it's good it's bad it's good it's bad it's good it's bad but if the person that you love is the one you want to be with throughout that that's where you're at but now when bad things happen which would be in the past there's a bill due that's very high or the car just malfunctioned and needs fixing or You know, just all these silly, in my opinion at this point, silly things. Yeah, with your perspective with what you've been through. Right. I used to freak out about it, or I'd even freak out at traffic. Oh, for God's sakes, I'm late because of traffic. Now I just look at it like, oh, how cute. There's traffic. I'm going to be late. Oh, well. You know, me need to plan ahead next time and or 
what I was doing was just as important. So this is how it goes. Mm -hmm. And um, the the ex external like my childhood family is not. Um, I don't think they've ever bought that I was going to die. Hmm. And that's probably... Your family of origin? Yeah, my fi family of origin. And I, I think it's a good thing. It's like that family of the gentleman who said, I'm sick with cancer and I'm going to die. And everyone gave the proverbial head tilt. And they all say, hmm, I'm so sorry. And believe that you're going to die. And I even asked my friends, please don't tilt your head when you say, how are you? Because I'm good. I'm here. And as my husband reminds me, every one of us could get hit by a bus tomorrow. It's true. We There's don't no guarantees. Know. There's no certainty in what comes next for any one person. Right. But I, I can see my family is not as affected by this, my family of origin, because it, there was literally a drama that still exists today because I changed a thermostat at the lodge that I built <laughs> with one other brother. He helped build it with me. Um, financially speaking, and um, and I changed the thermostat, and he yelled for a day and a half, and I, I, I just I walked away, which I found out hurt his feelings. Just mm -hmm. I just found this out last week, like that really hurt his feelings. Like he said, I disregarded him, and I said, no, I just I just couldn't believe that this was a problem. Just change it. <laughs> I'm okay with that. So I know that it doesn't. When you get cancer, you think, oh, the whole world's going to change. No, not, the whole world does not change. Only you mm. and maybe your closest circle. Okay. And that's all good. My daughter and son-in-law, my son-in-law is so fabulous. He, they both lived in Indianapolis. Great jobs. Dream house. Loved everything. My daughter's pregnant. She has a wonderful job. And he gets notice that he needs to be transferred to Chicago. Well, I'm thinking, don't count on it. This won't happen. I'm still thinking I could be at death's door when this happened. Okay. And yet, as it turned out, they moved a block away from me. And now I have a grandson a block away from me. And so the blessings that have come my way, my daughter-in-law, <clears throat> the young lady who was dating my son when I got sick, she is from Brazil, and she's a heart of gold, talented, smart, makes me cry, young lady who, when my family was busy, and unfortunately right after surgery, my husband's entire office was fired other than him. So knowing that we need this money, it might be very expensive to be sick with this rare aggressive cancer, mm -hmm. I pushed him out of my room and said, go to work. So I have no one with me. My daughter-in-law is nannying at the time and going to school and all sorts of things. And she came to the hospital and sat and I would wake up from my kind of coma not really, but just the state of not knowing where I was. And I was on much, a lot of medication. And I'd find her holding my hand and saying prayers. And I'd wake up and I'd say, oh. And she said, oh, I hope it's okay. I say prayers for you. And I said, of course, it's okay. Thank you. And so she would get nurses. She would say prayers and then she'd leave. But she came regularly. What did that mean to you? It meant everything to me. I had no one. My other friend who was supposed to sit with me got sick and ended up in the hospital and nobody else in my family could come or they'd lose their jobs. So they needed to be at work and so I was alone. And frankly, I was forgotten. The hospital, they didn't remember me. It was to the point where I was almost crawling out of my bed to get a nurse, but they had tied my ankles to the, the bed and I was on a catheter at the time and I could tell you need to do something because this is not looking good and my drip is gone. I have no liquid. You know, I'm not able to drink anymore. So there were times that I, I felt very alone, but um, so your, Alini was there. Your relationships in this time of trauma, medical trauma that you've gone through, changed significantly. Right. People 
were there for you in an emotional as an emotional support in new ways right and you also saw your relationships differently and it sounds like your children saw their relationships with their significant others exactly. differently. So it had this huge ripple effect it for did. your family of prioritizing things differently, of connecting differently, that it became sitting with you in a hospital room was this deep moment of connection and mm-hmm. what your years later right. sitting here talking about as We're, meaningful and impactful. Absolutely. And my son um, loved this girl. I could tell. There was no way he was going to live without this girl. But he was too methodical and scientific in his ways. Oh, I should wait, this and that. I always promised him my grandmother's ring when he was ready to ask her. I said, it doesn't have to stay in this state. But you ask me for it when you want to ask her to marry you. But I'm just telling you, from what I see, you shouldn't be waiting around. And if you feel the same way, if you can't live without her and can't see you living it without her, then you should tell her that. And it was a week later he asked me for the ring so he could make it over for her. And and after the fact, we always joke that if he didn't marry her, I would. <laughs> because she's such a sweet girl. Same thing with my son-in-law. I'm so lucky. He He gave me a bracelet when he married my daughter. And in the inside of it, he had inscribed... I will take care of her for you. Which was my biggest concern. That was just my children. And that brings me to one of the other things that I've learned about you from this conversation. Right. Is that in the moment that you were shockingly faced with your own mortality, your thoughts turned to other people. They turn to your family needing to be taken care of. They turn to children suffering. And And I know you said, like, that's what you think about, but I'm telling you, I've talked to other people about these things in my line of work. Many people do not do that. Many people (laughs) think about themselves. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's a bad thing. We all respond differently to shock and trauma. But this, that is an integral part of your identity. Well, I didn't even mention The most important part there is when I said my children, I have two, but my sister-in-law lost her life in 2010, leaving an 8, 13, and 15-year-old daughter. Three daughters for my brother to raise alone. He's devastated, can barely function, and I have three additional children that I'm cooking for um, quite often at their home, helping with homework, taking to school, going to teacher conferences, buying underwear. I mean, you name it. We're going to the gynecologist together. We're doing all these things. And they'd already lost their mother. And now they're going to lose their close aunt. I couldn't understand it. But my youngest niece, who, when this happened to me in 2015, came up aside from everybody else it was Thanksgiving and everybody was down eating and she came up all alone and she sat on my bed and this is when I was again thinking I'm going to die I hadn't looked into anything I hadn't gotten my new drive to live yet and she held my hands and she said Aunt Katie I had a conversation with God and he's told me that he's already taken my mother and he will not take you So don't you worry. He has promised me that will not happen. And all I could think of is, please don't disappoint this little girl because she's had enough and her sisters have had enough. So my two children went through helping those three girls as well. My daughter was their only babysitter. My son helped revamp the house after she died with my brother. So then how was it for you as a person who cares so much about the people in their life and prioritizes, it sounds like you prioritize other people's needs over your own. You've been a caregiver, a caretaker in your family, the glue that holds your family together. How is it then to go through a period of time where you need to be taken care of? Right. Where your role changes so dramatically for that period of time. And they did say that stress could cause metastasis. So the whole, it had to switch. It had to be where I focused on my health. 
So that's where I decided every day I, I go to work 10 to 6 until 10 a.m. That's my time. I work out. I eat well. I plan my food for the day. I meditate. I take care of me. I walk my dog. I love my dog. And and kind of set what's most important to me today, business-wise and personally. Mm-hmm. And I keep those at the forefront, even with a post-it note, if I have to. You know, something stuck right there where I can see it. And if I get those things done, then I'm happy with my day. And the rest is just noise. So that helped me focus. And I'm also good now. When it comes to the end of the day, I should say I'm better I'm able to say, you know what, tomorrow's another day. And if I don't stop now and take care of myself and go visit with my husband and go see my friends and my children, there won't be any of me to go around. So I need to do that. I need to go and and I will work very hard when I get here tomorrow. And, And that's what I do now. I compartmentalize work and home. And as my um, my mom would always say, I can tell you're not, you're not at work. So I'm not going to mention work. They know I really, when I'm with family and friends, I am not doing work. And when I am with work, I am not, you know, thinking of the personal things that I need to do in my life. I really compartmentalize and that helps me to function better. It sounds like it's been really helpful for you. It really changed the way that you, take care of yourself and be present for the people around you. Right. Right. So what would you say to somebody who might find themselves in a situation of being given devastating news about their own health? Yeah, it's a great question because, um, I would say resources, resources, there cannot be too many resources and people might tell you in the old days, it was trust your doctor. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, I still respect my doctors, but my doctors will tell us they don't know it all. So when I did, like, I just found a white paper, perfect example. So this is part of just use your resources. I saw a white paper. It was from Cleveland Clinic. It was on sarcoma. And it said CT scans have 77 times the radiation of a chest X-ray. And chest X-rays are now being just as... Um, efficient in finding metastasis. Hmm. Save yourself the radiation and ask for that. I sent the white paper to my doctor through the little portal and said, I know I am not a doctor. I want to respect you. Here's a white paper. Should I be switching to a chest x-ray? And he answered, he said, wow, thank you for bringing that to my attention. What an amazing oncologist to be open to the research that he just mm-hmm. didn't have the time to see yet. Right. Even if you have an amazing doctor, there's constantly mm. new developments and new research that right. can benefit. And they're only human. They can't know every new piece of information that's out there. So taking on part of that responsibility yourself and seeking that information and sharing it has been vital to your health. Right. So that's my advice to people is to use those resources and continue. I've signed up with Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, um, MD Anderson in Texas, and uh, Johns Hopkins in Boston for their emails on sarcoma. Many times I don't understand them, but if I don't, I can send them. And when there's discoveries, I know about them as soon as they're happening and they're written up in a white paper. So it's important. I also think emotionally, find your, this is going to sound so strange, but Facebook, I Google searched on Facebook, so I just searched in the Facebook bar, Lyomyosarcoma, and up came a village of Lyomyosarcoma patients from across the globe, and some of them are MDs. And so you find out over time, that became my support group. I could say, hey, who's had no metastasis and is just following surveillance? Oh, I have. And what was your data? I had this. And every one of us knows our data and shares our data. And then a few of them have personal messaged me. I'm an MD. I can't say that online. They have different names online. It might say, you know, Miss Sunshine. She, I know, is a sarcoma surgeon from California, but she messaged me and said, you need to read this. And so I would read that. Some of the best answers I have found 
came from that Facebook group. Mm -hmm. And some of the best um, comfort and finding the Sarcoma Foundation of America, for example, finding the Lyle Mayo Sarcoma Research Fund, finding these groups came from Facebook. So it's definitely keep doing your research long after you've seen a doctor and they're helping you because it's a collaborative effort today to stay well. And my doctors are very respectful and I have a lot of friends who've died of cancer who I always wonder, you know, you always, I'm sure their spouses and families, everyone's wondering, what could we have done differently? Mm -hmm. I wonder about that every day with my sister-in-law. What could we have done differently? And I don't know. I don't have those answers. But I think it's important that we continue to seek those answers when we're sick or even if we're well, staying well, what's going to keep me healthy? Should I be drinking soda pop? You know, maybe not. Why not? Do the research. Look at it. Should I be eating red meat? I don't know. Do the research. Take the resources that you respect, uh, that are well known, that are uh, scientifically based, and use those to guide you walking through life in a more healthy fashion. Mm -hmm. So that's all we do. The experience itself is so impactful and so many people help me stay alive. I guess it's just gratitude Mm. would be my only thought is gratitude for the MD who I helped him retire. And he's so grateful for that. And now he saved my life. How do I show him gratitude for something like that? But his one question was so key to the point where my surgeon said she got in there and we're actually friends. I've thanked her and hugged her many times for what she did because she stayed in there for four hours knowing I've got to take this 10-pound thing that's covered with veins and all sorts of things out and it's got to be whole. And she's um, a very uh, frail, not frail, but thin um, woman And she said her muscles were shaking by the end of the fourth hour. She had nothing left physically, and yet she got that 10 pounds out. She said, I put it on the table next to your body. I took every one of your organs out, set it on the table next to your body, cavity washed your body with saline solution. Had she not stayed and done all those things, I would be dead from metastasis or cut up or have less body parts. Mm -hmm. And... There's Olympic athletes today who have had their legs. There's a woman skier, had half her leg cut off from sarcoma, still keeps skiing. There's plenty of athletes out there now who have parts missing who are, it's from sarcoma. I would love for people to mention that it is sarcoma because they don't. And, you know, it's like it's private, and I understand that. But these Mm -hmm. kids who have it need to know you're surviving. And even it's adults an need to know. to put out there that right. you can survive this and you can live a life and achieve what you want to. Yep, absolutely. So I would love that to be something people would share and what they did that it, when they're alive and it's worked, what they did. Mm-hmm. So it, it's helpful to share information. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, a very powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing it with me today. And I hope some of the people listening to this can learn from the experience that you've gone through and also the ways that you have embraced uh, a new perspective on life and how that continues day to day as you go on. Thank you. Wow, Katie shared with us such an incredible story of survival and resilience and hope and optimism in a time of fear and worry that her story has really stayed with me for some time after our interview. What it's left me thinking about most is the fact that when we are presented with life-changing news, potentially devastating news. How we respond to it is one of the very few things that is within our control. It's one of the very few things that we can take ownership of and decide how we're going to move forward. 
And I, I think that everyone handles this stuff very, very differently. And I, everyone has a different support system, different resources, different privileges that they can access. But one thing that has really come to the surface in my mind after doing this interview and listening to it again is truly the power of connection, connection with others, with information, with ideas, and using um, the privileges that you have to access that and thinking about, well, if you don't have those privileges, you know, if you don't have access to information, financial resources, how are you already at a disadvantage? So then it gets me thinking about, you know, how, how do we work together as a society to create more opportunities, to have more connections for people as far as healthcare needs, financial resources, and social support. So I don't have the answers to these questions. Um, but what I can do as an individual is think about how I can affect change. How can I be more of a support to others? How can I use my power and privilege to bring more connection to other people's lives? And that's what I'm left marinating on, left thinking, what am I going to do with this information, with these ideas, and how can I actually have it positively impact someone else's life? So like I said, no solutions at this point, but I thank Katie for bringing me to this understanding and and wanting to create change around how to create more connection and give use my privilege to give people access to more resources and more support when they're facing you know the biggest challenges in life so for that thank you katie if you've been changed by a relationship in your life and you'd like to talk about it please email me at youchangedmepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your story.